I want you to turn your Bibles this morning then to uh, Genesis 37. Genesis 37. As I have been uh, in preparation for uh, this sermon, I, 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 just, I love the story of Joseph. Uh, it just to me is an amazing uh, account of God's sovereign grace uh, unfolding in the lives of very uh, difficult people. Uh, Hopefully you understand how I say this. If you think your life is messed up or if you think you've got a problematic family, just read this story, okay? You're going to feel really good really quick because here's what you're going to realize. If God could use them, he can use me. And what you will find is that the accounts that are recorded fall into the context, first of all, of a bigger story. There's something larger that God is doing throughout the storyline of Scripture. It's a salvation history story. It's God's purpose and plan to redeem people through His Son, Jesus Christ. That Son ultimately comes uh, into being in human flesh through a promise made to Abraham that is worked out through the life of His Son, who then has two sons named Esau and Jacob. And it is the family of Jacob that is the centerpiece, if you will, of this account. It's the story of his second youngest son, Joseph, and the horrific story of the treatment of that second youngest son by the 11 older sons. So the story has a broader picture in God's purpose and plan. And I, there's a danger for pastors when we preach these kinds of texts to drift into a psychological analysis of broken families and how God aims to help you overcome your brokenness. And when we do that, we short-circuit the big story. Okay? So I'm not going to deal with this text primarily as a psychological analysis of what favoritism, favoritism does to sons in a family. Uh, it's not the main purpose that's there. It's there for a grander purpose. But here's the interesting thing. The story is set in the context of a real family that is truly broken. So we, we can't deal with the text without looking at that aspect of the story and identifying that God's using people that are like us. And he's doing glorious and beautiful things. What I love as I read this context of the story is that the Bible isn't giving us a sanitized version of his people's story. He's not writing a story to get you to believe in the nation of Israel. Because if you were going to do that, you wouldn't write the story like this. So it's the real account of real people wrestling through brokenness and coming to know the grace and power of God at work in spite of, not because of, but in spite of them. And that's the kind of God that we have the privilege of serving. So as we look at this story, I hope that you will find hope. I hope that you will... Be willing to be honest about your own brokenness and sinfulness. Uh, lay hold of God's grace and thank him that he wants to work through your life in spite of the incredible struggles that each of us face along the way. So as the story starts, I want to begin reading in chapter, uh, 30, or chapter 37 of Genesis. And I want to read a portion of the story. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the three main characters, the father, the son Joseph, and the 11 brothers, okay? And I'll give you brief statements about those three sets of people, if you will, that make up the story. They're the, the main characters, if you will, the thing that would run at the end of the movie. These are the, the main participants in the story. I want you to see a little bit about them, and then I want to look at four principles that I believe emerge out of this text that deeply affect how we respond to trouble with a trusting heart. 
That's the encouragement this morning. So let's read verses 1 and following. Jacob, who, by the way, is the grandson of Abraham. So if you go back to chapter 12, you find the story of Abraham. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons named Jacob and Esau. The story then narrows down. What you'll find is you read through the Bible storyline, there's a group of people, and it always is narrowing down to one person. Okay, ultimately, it narrows down to the person of Jesus. Okay, and we're going to see that at the end of our discussion this morning, how that begins to kind of manifest itself in an understanding of this text. So Jacob lived in the land where his father stayed, the land of Canaan. Remember, the first audience hearing this is the people of Israel following the Exodus. All right, it tells them their story of how they ended up in Egypt and of God's amazing grace revealed in their story as a nation. So he lived in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. So here's the narrowing down. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billa and the sons of Silpa, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, quick qualification on the word bad. You can move in two directions. He's lying to make them look bad, or he's giving a truthful report that is negative in nature, okay? And I think as you study through the story, you're going to find, if you read a little, more, little bit more about his brothers, you're going to say it's definitely a, a true bad report about their behavior, okay? You won't have much question. Now, Israel, that is, if I, in my Bible, I draw a line around the name Jacob, draw a, li- a line around the name Israel, and I draw a line between them, okay? Because Jacob's name is changed by God to Israel. He becomes the father of the 12 tribes through his sons, okay? I'll just give you a little context, Now, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe. Some, uh, King James always said, a coat of many colors. It means a dignified, austere attire that this young man wore. And he's the youngest son, apart from Benjamin. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more, they were happy for Joseph. Sorry, I think I missed that. It says they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding up sheaves of grain or bundles of grain out in the field when suddenly my bundle rose and stood upright while your bundles gathered around mine and bowed down to it. That's a good way to encourage family love, right? Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, if you study the context, you find that Jacob has 11 sons. So the picture is mom, dad, and, or dad and the 11 sons bowing down before Joseph. The picture becomes very clear as to what's happening. All right. he, he is in the dream getting a message about royalty, about superiority over his brothers. And he, he shares it. And you may think to yourself, well, that's, that's foolish. Okay, and, and I, I get that. And, and sometimes people will try to guess, was, was Joseph being antagonistic? Was he kind of poking his finger in the eyes of his brothers who could barely talk to him, who resented his 
favorite status with his father. I'm going to argue that if you read the whole story of the life of Joseph, it's going to be pretty hard to argue that the intentions of Joseph were in this sharing, in fact, malicious. I think you're going to find that he gets a word from God that he is convinced is from God, and he shares it. When he told his brothers and fathers, or his brothers and father, he rebuked him, his father. He said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, and it's totally understandable at a certain level. But his father kept the matter in his heart. Which means that when Joseph shared this, Jacob's got two responses. Your brothers are going to be so mad at you. But his other response is, this sounds like the hand of God. So, so that's the kind of the tension, if you will, that emerges. So here's the minimum thing we know. Okay, and here's the three characters. You have a dad who shows favoritism towards his youngest son. He lost his wife in the childbirth of Benjamin, his, his, his first youngest son, okay? Then Joseph appears through this story as the youngest brother until Benjamin comes on the scene at the end of the book, okay? He becomes more of a, of a favorable character. But there's favoritism probably emerging out of, out of Jacob's grief. He becomes very affectionate and fond of this youngest son. And when you understand the character of the 11 sons, you understand these are not like huggable, squeezable types, they're difficult and rascally and contrary and ultimately murderous in their hearts. So some some read this story and assume that Father Jacob is affected by the dream from Joseph and begins to realize that God has set his favor on Joseph for future plans. That seems to be what emerges in the story. So the robe may be an indication that Jacob sees something unique in Joseph and is acknowledging that. Certainly by the time you get to the end of the story, you know that there is something really powerful about Joseph's life that's going to cause him to rise to the top, even though in age he does not deserve the highest place. But in character, it is appropriately given. Okay? So that's the dad. Problematic in that he gives him special attire to his son, showing some degree of favoritism, and it's irritating to the older brothers. Joseph is the younger, favored brother who brings a bad report, a truthful report, but a bad report, so his brothers hate him. I had two older brothers. There were three of us born in 27 months. I probably did some tattletaling along the way, okay? Uh, I was like their punching bag, okay? And uh, there were times I would just put a zinger out there to mom and dad, not to get my brothers to love me, but to get favor, Okay? kind of knew how to play the game as the youngest boy, okay? And so in this story, there's a bad report, but there's also dreams, and Joseph is not sharing them to improve his relationships with his brothers. It seems that he's sharing them because they're true. There's something that's been revealed to him. And the one thing I want to say about the dreams right now is that the dreams are intensely personal. They single Joseph out as a beneficiary or participate participant in what is being revealed. And that's just, to me, an important background fact. The last uh, set of characters is the 11 brothers. And verse 4 kind of sets the tone of this text. They hated him and could not speak a kind word 
to him. So this is a text that because of that introduction is riddled with tension. Okay, it's an uncomfortable text to read through. You're kind of waiting for things to go wrong as you read this story. Okay, so they're the characters. Now, go to verse 12 of the text then. And these guys were shepherds. So verse 12 says, now, so you have the, the setting of the story. And when you see the word now or then in your Bible translation, that's indicating that you're moving to a new narrative, another part of the story, the next scene, if you will, or chapter. Okay? Now, his brothers had gone to graze with their, their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Okay, which kind of tells you that Joseph is a bit of a, a man that works in managing his brother's business that is, or his father's business that his brothers have some degree of oversight over. But he wants to know how things are going. And he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, Who, what are you looking for? He replied, I am looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Well, they moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. In verse 18, they saw him at a distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. We'll see. And you can kind of pick up the sneer, the snicker, the, the, just the animosity that they have towards Joseph. Very deep. And now it has moved to being murderous. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed blood. Throw him into a cistern here in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand upon him, Reuben said, this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. And right away you get a, okay, that's a light going on. They despised what that robe symbolized. The favoritism of their father and the exalted, exalted stature of the younger brother. They despised it. They wanted to rip it off of him. And with their father at a distance, they could do their evil deeds. They threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water. Here's the thing that to me is amazing in the next statement. It says, as they sat down to eat their meal. If you ever wonder if your heart is capable of evil, okay, wonder no more. Okay, they were capable of taking the one they hated, stripping of, of him of his honor, putting him in a cistern to die, and they sit down to eat the food that he had brought. That's pretty messed up. And I hope, I hope you don't look at it and say, oh, I could never feel that way. Because if you do, I'm going to say, then why do you think this story is here? I understand primary story, but there's an underlying story too. So let me move through four applications of this story, and I'll complete the story in a moment. The first thought I, that, that I have in my notes, because I'm, I'm looking at how do we respond to trouble when it comes up, to sinful complexities in a broken world. And I, 
I, I know so many of you personally that as I look around the room, I, I, can, I, can, I can see in your lives and in my own life, I, we, we know each other well enough that a story like this can wound, but I want it to be a means that God uses to heal you and to help you get past things you can't resolve and trust him to be sovereign over all things in your life. The first thought I have is, is about this kind of unfolding drama in verses 4 and following about the hatred of these brothers. Verse 4, and I want you to just pick up on the idea of a progression. Verse 4, they hated him and could not speak a word to him. Verse 5, Joseph has a dream and told it to his brothers. They hated him all the more. Verse 8, the end of this first dream. Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream that he had. Then he has another dream. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. They wanted what he had. And they would not rest until it was in their hands. That's what starts to drive the story. So the first thought I want to share with you this morning is you, as you think about your own life and you think about struggles, and, and you know, we're not always the victim. A lot of time we're the person doing the hurt. Here's the first principle I think that emerges. Sinful attitudes, when tolerated or nurtured or coveted in our hearts, can lead to shocking and sinful actions. I'm going to argue that there's a progression in the bitterness that results in a jealousy. The jealousy is the idea, I want what you got, and I'm kind of coming to the place where I'm willing to do anything to have it. And that's why I think you see this hatred move to murder. It's that strong. The progression of this, I think, is important because it's going to lead to a spectacular sin, if you will. A sin that is shocking as you read it. These guys want their brother dead. That's where they've come. That, to me, is a spectacular degree of hatred. But here's what I find amazing. I don't think that they were sitting out in Dothan plotting Joseph's death. I think they harbored or nurtured an attitude in their hearts, a jealousy that was so deep that when Joseph showed up, it, it morphed into something that they never expected. Folks, that's why when you, you face those kinds of bitternesses or coveting or jealousies in your heart, you must be very careful. They quickly can accelerate exponentially and morph into something that will cause you to say, I'm not like that. You've probably heard that a lot of times. I'm always amazed when pro athletes are giving their apology speech. That's not me. It's like, and who was it? Who was it? It was you tolerating attitudes in your heart that given an opportunity accelerated exponentially and morphed into something that you haven't had part in before, but it was there in a seed form. So the first principle that I think emerges in, in the realm of the uh, psychology of this text and biblical pattern, what we tend to look at is dysfunction. And that's how many, many people look at this text and says, these people are incredibly dysfunctional. A Christian's going to look at it and say, these people are overwhelmingly sinful, rebellious against God and his standards, tolerating attitudes that the New Testament is clear about. These are dangerous, fiercely prohibited in the Bible. Paul will say, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let it live long. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. 
Why? If you do nurture it in such a way, it will morph, it will exponentially accelerate and become something you never expected. I don't think the murder of Joseph was planned. I think it just opportunity and circumstance and boom. That's the way sin works. Jesus put it this way. He said, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. I think what Jesus is saying, what you think is what you do. What you think ultimately is who you are, which means I need to then dig deeper, not at the surface of the actions I have, but at the heart I've been nurturing and tolerating that is contrary to God's love and to God's plan. You will try to convince yourself that sins of thought are okay because they're hidden. That I can live with a degree of covetousness or hatred or resentment or jealousy. That it's, it's somehow containable. But I think what this text is saying, those things have a progressive nature that is virtually irresistible when tolerated, coddled, and nurtured. And, and so I just say that to you lovingly. Sinful attitudes like bitterness and jealousy grow up and have children. They spawn. They propagate in ways that are shocking, even to the participant. And so the warning that comes in this text, sinful sinful attitudes when tolerated lead to shocking and sinful actions. And those actions in this case are directed against two. The favored son who is the heart of this story. And at the end of the day, you're going to say, in this story, he's the believer. And so I want you to kind of see this in full context. After the brothers do their wicked deed, when it's all done, verses, and I'm going to come back to one section here, but verses 31 and 32 tells you of their plan to cover up the fact that Joseph is gone. Okay, and, and here's what it says. They got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped it, the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it is your son's. This is just outright deceit. Okay, and it's being targeted against Joseph, who now has been sold as a slave. We know, we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. But what I want you to see just at this point is this This action of sinfulness for the brothers leads them into a place of bondage, right? All of a sudden, they're captive to their choices that they've made. They're enslaved to those bad choices. They do what they do. Then the thought comes to mind, oh, yeah, we got to go home. And we got to have a plan in place. And we have to be in agreement on it and be sure that nobody knocks the other guy out and says it was their idea. That's how broad sweeping this becomes. Now, here's the way I look at this kind of a a text. This is a a level of guilt that they have brought themselves into that is going to haunt them for the rest of their lives. If you read this text, you're going to get into the realm of 23 to 28 years of brokenness and bitterness and, and hiding from dad what really happened. Now, here's the thought that comes to my mind, and I share this with people in counseling. You and I don't have secrets. Our secrets have us. These men did something that they now have to keep quiet for the rest of their lives. Here's what I want you to understand. That's where bitterness and covetousness and jealousy can take you. Because when I harbor those kind of, when I have those feelings in my mind, guess what? I am only hoping that people around me don't know what I'm thinking. 
And so I end up with secrets. I end up with things that I keep, got to keep hidden. In this case, the thoughts that they had had moved into actions. Now they've got to keep the secrets suppressed every time they're home around their father. My analogy is something like this. It, keeping secrets like that because you don't trust in God and don't go to him for grace and forgiveness is like holding balls underwater. You end up living, some people have one ball, some people have two balls, some of us have a lot of balls. And here's my analogy of it. You, you end up having to keep the ball out of sight, but because you're pushing a ball down underwater, what's it always threatening to do? It wants to pop out, but you can't have that happen. And because you're not trusting God and you can't be transparent with the people around you, you live your life managing stressfully these balls that always want to push up and expose. That's where these brothers end up. For the next 20 plus years, they did something in their life that they have not put under the grace of God and it will haunt them and it is going to affect others exponentially like Father Jacob and Joseph. I remember when I was a little kid, I was probably, I, I think, like 10, 11 years old. I probably, if you've been around a while, you've probably heard me tell this story. We had a neighbor named Bill Haynes. Bill Haynes was a wonderful Mennonite man, just peaceful, loving, everything awesome. My brothers and I built a lot of forts in the woods next to his property. So it's our house, Bill Haynes' house, and the woods where we all hung out and did all kinds of craziness. We would build forts, and to build a nice fort you need nice straight stock. My neighbor had planted some trees in his yard, and we thought they were pretty nice trees as we walked by them. Now, I have a brother who's troubled, my oldest brother. He talked me into cutting those trees down. Cut those babies down. They fit the fort perfectly. Good stock. Now I had a secret. <laughs> I was like, why did I let him talk me into that? <laughs> so I remember laying in bed that night thinking, man, it's brutal to carry this kind of burden. And I, I understand. It's okay. Yeah, it, in the grand scheme of life, it's nothing. But at the moment, as a 10-year-old, it's all I was thinking about. It was captivating in a bad way. Heard the phone ring. I heard, my mom, I heard my mom say, it's Bill. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> I'm going to die. <laughs> That's what I thought. And, oh, man, my dad got my brother and I, walked us over to the scene of the crime, told Bill he'd take care of it. Oh, man, I'll never forget what happened at that stump. <laughs> here's, here's the weird part. It felt good to get it out. So, so I'm going to tell you something. The consequences of your sin are a lot better to deal with than keeping it hidden. Especially when you're dealing in a context where there's grace. I knew my dad loved me. I knew that day I wasn't bad. Dad, I don't deserve this. I deserve every swat you're giving me. That was kind of more like a hit or a whack. <laughs> uh, I deserved it. But I, when I went back to bed, guess what? I fell right asleep. No more insomnia. And folks, I'm going to tell you, because these brothers chose to bury their sin, they had secrets. And it, forgive how I say this, it's hell to live with secrets. It's brutal. It's isolating, which is what hell is. 
Their sinful actions lead to bondage. They think their sinful actions are leading them to the land of plenty, right? Get rid of Joseph. Guess what? Everything coming to him comes to us. Favor, status, and blessing. Amazing, right? How wrong they were. How wrong they were because God is sovereign over all things. The third point is this. Our initial response when wounded, our sinful response when wounded, is to wound others. As I look at this story, these brothers did wrong, and the consequences of their wrong are so much more far-reaching than they ever imagined. Does that make sense? They never imagined when they did it spontaneous, that exponential acceleration that morphed into wickedness. They never, they ne they never sat down and said, okay, we could do that. Because sin makes you irrational. You don't sit down and write it out on paper. Well, we can do this, then this, then this. Then we're going to make up the story, and then we're going to live with this the rest of our lives. Let's do it. It's not how sin works. Satan scoffs at the idea that there's consequence to sin. He sneers at it, and then he snookers you. He takes what he promised you, and he gives you what you deserved. In this story, the father is inconsolable. Look at verse 35. Just, they come home. They, 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 they give the, uh, the, the bloody, plotting, deceitful robe to their father. He recognizes it, says, verse 33, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. And they're thinking to themselves, yeah, we got it. He bought it. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces, father says. Then, and this is, the next, this is one of those shifts in the story. The unexpected shift for the brothers. Jacob tore, Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days in their presence. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. And folks, they never imagined that it would be that bad. But it is. It's a point I want to drive home for you. The effects of our sinful attitudes and actions are, in fact, uncontainable. Well, we always think that they can be contained. It's the way we think. I can, I can, I can manage this. I can, I can work this. I want to beg with you. If you're playing with sin today, it's not containable. The evil one will tell you, no, it's fine. It's not containable. It will switch around and enslave you. It will put you in bondage and will go further in terms of damage than you could ever imagine. Every parent, I say this to you, be so careful. Every young person, no matter what decisions you're facing at your age, be careful. Every decision you make has far-reaching consequences in your life. Be very careful. And the last thought I want to share with you is, how does a righteous person respond to wounds and injury? Because I think this is the heart of the story. Okay, the other things, they're important. But the heart of the story is how does a righteous person respond to wounds and injuries that are spectacular in nature? My natural response, I've got to tell you, is to fight back. You hit me, I want to hit you back. That's why, that's why I am. I want to go tooth for tooth. That's what I want to do. Grace doesn't allow. I think in this story, the key question that raises is this. Who sent Jacob? Or who sent, I, I got these Names to start with J, and then Doug helped me out by Joe Jacobs, and I got it all messed up in my head. 
And Doug, thank you. Last week was excellent. Just a good, helpful summary for this story. Uh, Hang on, I lost my thought for a second. We'll blame it on Doug. Okay, who sent Joseph to Egypt? Okay, why is Joseph going down to, with these Midianites? Why is that happening? If I, if I seriously ask you outside of church, who sent Joseph to Egypt? Who would you honestly say? Who? I can't hear you. Sorry. His brothers. I want to read a verse for you because in most circumstances you're in, especially when you've been mistreated, you are attributing all of it to the actor who is against you, and you come under their sway, and you live in a prison yourself. Because my life is so bad. Okay, you, you need to get a larger view of God, and that's what I think the main thrust of the story is not the brokenness, it's that God is sovereign over that brokenness. I read for you Psalm 105, and I encourage you to go read it yourself this week. Psalm 105, 17. This is in the story of, of, of Israel as a nation where they are in the land of Palestine. They're, they go down to Egypt to get food to survive. They stay there. God raises up someone to bring him out. But in the middle of that story, this verse, Psalm 105, 17, he, God, sent a man before them. Joseph sold as a slave. He, God, sent Joseph before them, sold as a slave. And folks, for many of you, that's going to rock your theological world because you don't have a big enough view of God, and neither do I. But if you get it, it will relieve your distress over the mistreatment that you've received. And it will free you from the bondage of it. God sent Joseph to Egypt. He is that sovereign in your life. So think of your story. Think of how you've responded. Think of where it takes you in your heart. And I I want you to challenge that thinking and say, is that the response of a righteous woman or man or young person? Is that how a righteous person responds to antagonism and hatred and coveting and jealousy? Is that the response? The righteous response is, I trust God. I cling to his promises in spite of the spectacular circumstances that have come into my life. And if you ask me why I think Joseph responds in such a beautiful way when he gets to Egypt, two things have happened. God has given him a word in a dream. And Joseph never forgets it. You're going to be at the top. You're going to save others. And the second word, I think, is that when he's in that pit, ready to die, God sends a caravan of Midianites by that causes his brothers to recalculate. We'll say he died, but he's really not dead. We sold him as a slave. Isn't that better? It's like... That's what they're thinking. We didn't kill him. We just hated him. Here's what hatred is. Hatred is, I just wish you didn't exist. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. You better be careful if you're harboring that, that it doesn't morph. Joseph had every reason to live with hatred, jealousy, and covetousness the rest of his God-given life, but does not. That's why I refuse to believe that a sharing of the dreams was meant to, be in, to instigate something. 
Like it just happened and he shared it. It may not seem like the wisest thing, but he just shared it. He believed it. A life principle that I share with you this morning is this. I have problems and God has plans. I have problems. God has plans. Let God etch on your heart that he is sovereign in all things. If I believe God, I respond in faith, not fear. I believe that he is, as we sung last week, working in our waiting, who can understand his love. When beyond our understanding, he's teaching us to trust. Not as a cliche, but as the deep conviction of my heart that God is at work in all things for our good and for his glory. And what the enemy means for evil, he's turning it for our good and for his glory. Folks, when that settles in, when that conviction that in this circumstance that God has allowed, he is at work, you will start to gaze for him. And you will find that bitterness and covetousness and jealousy and all the things that eat of us start to fade away. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. I love that verse. That hit 15 years ago, I memorized that verse. I know it's not heroic, okay? It's like seven or eight words. But I love it. I resort to it. I go back to it on a regular basis. He's in the heavens. He does what pleases him. That's why we don't panic when abuse comes. We're trusting him. I can't trace his hand, that song says, but I trust his heart. I'm resting in him. I'm longing to wait. Psalm 105, the text that I read you, that little bit from God sent a man to Egypt, Joseph, sold as a slave. Here's the beginning of that psalm. Just let this settle in. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Tell of his wonderful acts. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who, who seek him rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always in all circumstances. Remember the wonders he has done. He remembers his covenant forever. The words he commanded he remembers for a thousand generations. What he promises he fulfills. Let that, let that settle into your story. Let that settle into the covetousness or the jealousy or the hatred that is broken out against you, even murderous. Let it get saturated with the glory and presence and purpose of God so that you look at it and say, yeah, I got problems. God has plans. And he's the one I'm trusting to deal with these problems. You're not good enough, folks. You're not good enough to deal with those things alone. And so God comes alongside. Jesus gives you the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. Let that promise deeply Come in and strengthen your heart. There's two types of people here this morning. There's people who are hurt, like Joseph, carrying a burden of rejection, mistreatment, unfairness, abuse. And some of you literally abuse. It feels so right to harbor it. People will tell you that they understand how you feel. It's comforting, but it is poison. And it will kill you spiritually. So I say to you, with all the power you have by the Spirit of God, to lay hold of the throne of grace and find help in your time of need. Don't let bitterness rule. Go to God and say, God, this is my problem. What's your plan? 
His response in Jeremiah is, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to help you, not to hurt you, to give you hope in a future. Joseph's, his world in one day is decimated. But at the end of the chapter, the verse that just shoots out like, like a firework in my mind. It says, Joseph went down to Egypt and he was sold into Potiphar's house, the head of Pharaoh's household. To me, I read that and I say, that is just so amazing and cool. That at the beginning of his journey in Egypt, God says, I got your back. I'm going to put you in a place of providence that you could never have imagined. Trust me. Trust me. And be faithful. Because as you read Joseph's story, and we're going to go through the rest, you know, one of the questions in my notes is, how does Joseph respond? And I put down in my notes, you've got to come back next week and find out. <laughs> but I know how God's responding. He's in control. I beg you, don't let covetousness and bitterness and jealousy rule in your heart. It will ruin you and cause you to do things you could never imagine. Instead, go to the cross of Christ, who was betrayed like Joseph was for you who was stripped of his robe like Joseph was. He did it for you. He was sold as a slave. He was wished dead like Jesus was for you. When you see Joseph, see Jesus. See an emerging savior in the plan of a mighty God. That was one means for evil. He turns it for a good. Will you trust his promises? Father, this morning, I thank you that your grace is amazing. Thank you that your word is enduring and lives forever and that we can study this account thousands of years old and see how it rings true with our experience of Christ. See how it speaks of freedom and hope and sovereignty. God, help us to trust you. And God, forgive us when we drift into bad habits and sinful habits and God-belittling habits. May we be faithful believers who say, though he slay me like Job, yes, I will still trust him. God, let that be your plea and let us be assured of that plea because Jesus Christ not only endured much for us, he died for us so that all our wrestling with bitterness and anger and jealousy can be forgiven and we can have hope and a future in spite of the fact that we are messed up, dysfunctional people, just like this family. Lord, we love you. We praise you for your grace. Let, let it be known to us through the song that we now sing, for the glory of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.